This morning's reading is from the 11th chapter of Hebrews, verses 1 through 6. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Well, we are going to be working through this passage from Hebrews 11 over the next couple of weeks. This is a well-known chapter on faith. Obviously, we see that theme reappearing time and time again in just those short six verses. This well-known chapter on faith leads then into perhaps an even more familiar chapter about running with endurance, persevering, removing any weight that slows us down, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So we'll spend time over the next couple of weeks looking at these six verses, talking about faith through the lens of what the author of Hebrews is saying here. The author, of course, is pausing in the middle of a larger argument about faith to make a point, but also offer some specific examples of the life of faith. So in this encouragement to live a life of faith, here are some models we can follow. These saints of old, these saints that preceded you, women and men in the Old Testament, they had very limited, incomplete visible evidence of the promises received, yet those promises changed and directed the course of their lives. And this whole argument begins with a fairly straightforward, somewhat basic definition of faith. We read it in verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. This was the principle that guided these individuals who had been caught up in God's story of redemption. They were so convinced that their God was who he said he was and that their God would do what he said he would do that though the promises they had received involved something so far off in the distant future that they wouldn't see or taste it before their deaths, still... They tried to live as though those things were a reality already. 
I want to suggest today that faith for us is similar in many ways. Primarily in this regard that we live today according to the promises made in Jesus Christ, though we await the complete or full manifestation of his kingdom, we pray even now, Father, let your kingdom come today on earth as it is in heaven. Help us to live into those future realities, many that we can't see visibly. Help us to live into those realities now. So this is the life of faith, assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things unseen. But before exploring the faith of some specific individuals, which we will get into more next week, before exploring those specific individuals in God's story who exhibited that unrelenting faith, a statement is made in the first few verses about one of the most fundamental ways that faith, whether religious or not, but one of the most fundamental ways faith is an issue we must all wrestle with. And it's this, as we look at the world around us, as we look at the visible matter that we encounter and engage with every day, we are constantly faced with the question, whether it's conscious or not, we are faced with the question, why is there something instead of nothing? Why is there something instead of nothing? I'm sure by now many have seen the images released a few weeks ago, captured by NASA's Webb Telescope, that, that show a new perspective on some of the deepest, darkest corners of our universe. If you've seen them, you know that the sharpness and quality, the detail in those images is just remarkable, leaving you almost speechless. Now, in case you um, thought otherwise, I will confess here from the beginning, I obviously know very little about astronomy. Although I did audit an astronomy class 15 years ago, I was sort of under the assumption that that was going to make me an expert, but alas, as Austin often says, what I don't know could fill a book. Um, I know very little about outer space, but I think my favorite image that was released is still this one, it should be behind me in a moment, that shows what appears to be just a bunch of stars, but apparently all of those images of light, actually those are individual galaxies. So, and that image apparently is the size of a grain of sand if held at arm's length. The implication, of course, is well, if that is a tiny corner of our universe with an es that, that there are an estimated somewhere between 100 billion and a trillion galaxies, not stars, but galaxies in our universe. I know that's quite a range, 100, million to, uh, or 100 billion to 1 trillion, but even at the low end of that estimate, it, for me, even with that astronomy class that I audited, it is basically unfathomable. Each of those galaxies potentially has billions 
of stars. If you're anything like me, it, it is overwhelming even to try to think about that. But it's also, for me, incredibly awe-inspiring. You know, Brian Zond has suggested that the phenomenon of wonder is uniquely human. And he said that there are two things that evoke wonder in us, the beautiful and the mysterious. Now, I think as Christians, it's difficult to see those images and not be moved to a state of awe and wonder. They are indeed both beautiful but also quite mysterious. And that awe and wonder that we are moved to rightly then culminates for us in the worship of our God. Because as we affirm in the Apostles' Creed, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We affirm that God created it all. Each of those hundreds of billions of galaxies, each of those innumerable stars, all of it created by God. Our Bible begins in Genesis 1 with a creation narrative that ultimately conveys two key realities. Number one, God created everything that exists, and everything God created was good. That's the repeated refrain throughout that chapter. The, the goodness of creation is affirmed each of those subsequent days of creative activity. God created God saw that it was good. It is doubly affirmed then on the third day when life begins. And then finally, on that sixth day that is described, verse 31, God saw everything that he had made. And indeed, it was very good. This is fairly unique, quite different from what we see in other ancient creation stories that often depict creation as sort of the fallout in a battle between good and evil, where evil plays a central role in the creation of all that exists. But in this story, God is responsible for it all. Now, it's important to note here from the beginning that when we read the first few chapters of Genesis, we are not reading a science textbook. The focus is not on explaining precisely how creation came into being or even when God created. At its core, this is a theological treatise declaring God created and it was good. We'll come back to this in a moment, but Hebrews 11, verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Universe created by the word of God, what is seen is not made out of things that are visible. Now, what we do not read here in the third verse of this chapter is that what is seen is inferior in some way to what is unseen. We do not read that the invisible, the spiritual world, is the real stuff of our human existence, and that and that alone is what God's interested in. Now, the point, I think, as we affirm in the creeds, 
is simply this, that God created it all. In theological terms, you, you often hear that phrase, creation out of nothing. And this is something that the author of Hebrews seems to be getting at, that God didn't whittle down matter that existed or preceded him, uh, this large chunk of shapeless, purposeless matter, and then God gets to work making what he wants. But God created it all, matter itself. The countless galaxies, the undiscovered depths of the sea, the, the mystery that is the world of physics, the complexity of our human bodies, all of it spoken into being by God. As the Nicene Creed says, everything visible and invisible created by God. And as the creator, God stands independent of creation, not far off or removed or distant and aloof, but God doesn't rely on creation for his being. So matter itself is not eternal like God. Matter has a beginning. So as Christians, we don't see creation itself as divine, it is not eternal like God. We don't believe that God is everything or that God is understood as the sum of all of the parts of the universe. We believe that God is the creator of all matter, stands outside of it, and is independent of it. God created all things visible and invisible. And it's not just Genesis 1 where we read this. This is repeatedly affirmed by God's people. We find it throughout the Torah. We see it making its way into the books of poetry, especially a, a book like Psalms. We even, though, see it in the prophetic writings, in a place like Isaiah 45, where God is speaking to Cyrus through the prophet, and we read this in verse 12, I made the earth and created man on it, it was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. Time and again, God's people in the Old Testament, but also in the earliest expressions of the Christian church, God's people affirm that God created everything. He made it all and sustains all life. So that's where it begins. Which maybe leads to the, the follow-up question, well, how did God create? And when did God create? I don't know. And I'm going to go out on a limb, and I don't mean to be presumptuous, but my guess is neither do you. We simply don't know the mechanics involved in the creation of all that exists. We simply affirm that God created it involved God's speech, it seems to have involved a process of some kind. It wasn't a momentary creative act. God created and it was good. In Genesis 1, God says, let there be light. He says, let there be light, and there is light. And that pattern continues throughout the story. It wasn't a laborious or exhausting endeavor, but God speaks and creation springs. In Genesis, though, it also seems to involve 
a process. Again, it wasn't one moment. Now, disagreement abounds when it comes to exactly what that process looked like. So were the six days of creative activity described in Genesis 1, were those literal 24-hour days, or is maybe day a reference to a much longer period of time, like an age? Um, those are really interesting questions, and to be honest, I have opinions on those issues. They're just like my opinion, man. But again, I don't think that's the point. The point is that God speaks, creation comes into being, and his creation was good. Psalm 104 speaks of how creation operates today through these processes of renewal. There are processes at play even today. The psalmist puts it this way in verse 10. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. We find similar language in the Genesis account of creation in chapter 2. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. So not only is God creator of everything visible and invisible at some point or at some points in the past, but continues to hold it all together, sustaining it all even today. This is how the Apostle Paul put it. Colossians chapter 1, speaking of Jesus in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He creates and sustains everything, even now. So we believe that God is the creator of all that exists. How do we know this? Well, simply put, by faith. This is not something that we can prove. We don't take it into a laboratory and run a series of tests to, to prove all of this. It does require faith. By faith, the author of Hebrews says, we believe it was created by the word of God that all that exists proceeds entirely from the goodness of God. But I want to suggest today that that notion that it requires faith shouldn't be as off-putting as it has become in our enlightened modern world. Because indeed, everybody lives by faith. There is no escaping it. It is just a matter of the object of our faith. And as Christians, 
Because of our faith, we believe that God created everything that exists. You know, the late Lutheran theologian Robert Jensen put it this way. He said, modernity is defined by the attempt to live in a universal story without a universal storyteller. He says, that experiment has failed. And I would add that that experiment actually involves an incredible amount of faith, just not faith in God. And I wonder also if that experiment in some ways have, has failed because of the increasing recognition that it is actually impossible to live without faith. The author of Hebrews insists, in faith we believe that God created everything. In faith we believe, but any philosophy of being requires faith. You know, science as a field of study can't provide objective answers to every question we have as the human race. There are limits to scientific truth. So just as theology doesn't wade into the subtle mechanics of the human body, or just as theology doesn't wade into the grand details of precisely how and when God created Similarly, scientific inquiry has a difficult time providing objective answers to philosophical questions like, why? Why? Back to the question we started with today. Why is there something instead of nothing? Any answer provided to that question, which is a very common question for the human race to ask, any answer requires a step of faith. We believe by faith that God created the universe, everything visible and invisible. Why? Well, some theologians have answered this question by saying that creation is the goodness and the love of God expressing itself. That God is so full of love and goodness that it spills out or pours over. And as that goodness and love are poured out, his glory flashes before our eyes. So think of those new images that that web telescope has captured. Think of that in relation to what the psalmist says in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. That vision that Isaiah records, Isaiah chapter 6, he says, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up. The, the train of his robe filled the temple, and the seraphim call out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The glory of God flashing before our eyes. The creation of everything that exists doesn't add anything to the glory of God, but it does reveal God's glory to us. We know God in part through his creation. The, the second century church father, Irenaeus, put it this way, the first step for a soul to come to know God is contemplation of nature. So if, as we read in Hebrews 11, if we have faith, and it I want to stress this. It does require faith. If we have faith that God is the creator of all that exists, 
the creator of everything both visible and invisible. It's created by the word of God out of nothing. Well, what now? Or is that it? Is this just a belief that we put in a box and put in the attic? It's, it's like an old baseball card. We slide it into one of those fancy plastic protectors where that plastic is probably worth more than the baseball card at this point. We stash it away in the attic or our parents force it on us when we move out of the house so that they can clean out their... I'm, this is autobiographical if you couldn't tell. Belief in God as creator, it's not just this belief that we get in our heads and then we, we put it aside unless we want to pull it out for some interesting conversation or if we feel like some nostalgic reminiscing. Now, our faith in God as creator actually has some incredibly important ramifications in our lives. First of all, if God is the creator, if by faith we believe this, one of the ways we encounter our God is through his creation. Now, I think it's worth considering that this, both of the sacraments that we participate in as the church involve rather ordinary, mundane physical materials. So both the Eucharist, which we will celebrate together in a moment, baptism, which we will participate in in a couple of weeks, both of these sacraments involve rather ordinary, mundane physical materials. We've got bread and the fruit of the vine and water. And we believe that through these sacraments that we are encountering Jesus Christ, that these are a means of grace for us. We encounter God through his creation. John of Damascus, the seventh century monk and church father, once said, the whole earth is a living icon of the face of God. The whole earth is a living icon of the face of God. Encountering and enjoying the glory of our God through creation is a part of our purpose as human beings. And if that's the case, I want to suggest that we are also called into a life of caring for creation precisely because it is God's handiwork that displays his glory. Not because we are overconfident in our ability to sustain creation. No, we've already discussed. It is God's hand alone that is constantly sustaining all of life and all of creation. But we also don't just throw our hands in the air. Say, well, it doesn't matter. That's God's business. No, how we engage with the world around us is actually important. The world we inhabit is not just a worthless pit stop on the journey of life. It's not that bathroom in a sketchy gas station on a cross-country road trip where that's your only option. So you just got to suck it up and, and go in. And the floor is so sticky that every step you take, you're just peeling your shoe off the floor. You know what I'm, you're laughing because you know what I'm talking about. It's, right? The world we inhabit is, it's not the hotel room in the 80s rented out by a rock and roll band just passing through the city for the night. So we have one night to party and absolutely trash this place. It doesn't matter because we're going to be gone by noon tomorrow and it'll be somebody else's mess to deal with. That attitude reveals not only an utter disrespect for the next person in line, but also a complete disrespect for the owner of the property. 
how we engage with the world we inhabit as followers of Jesus is actually important. You know, in his novel, The Brothers Karamazov, Dostoevsky has a, a character named Zosima, who's a monk, and near the end of his life, he's providing all of this advice. And one of the things he says is this, love all of God's creation, both the whole of it and every grain of sand. He goes on, love every leaf every ray of light. In doing so, he argues, you begin to perceive the mystery of God in everything, and you begin to grow in your understanding of who God is. So we affirm, again, it is based on faith, but we affirm that we believe God created everything that is visible and invisible. But these are not just mental beliefs that we lock away. These are not only verbal affirmations we make, we believe God is the creator of all, and as such, we believe his creation reveals his glory. This is important for us because as we reflect on the beauty of the world around us, as we care for it in any way we can, as we enjoy the gift of creation, we are drawn closer to God, and I believe we are drawn deeper into our purpose. To enjoy the glory of God and to then be empowered to display or reflect that glory to the world around us. Would you stand? We are going to celebrate around the table of our Lord today. Our Lord, who as Paul says in Colossians, is the source of all of creation. The one who was active in those processes the one in whom all things are being held together even now. As we celebrate around these physical materials, I would encourage you to be reminded of these facts, that our God is a creating God, and our God's creation reveals his glory. I'm going to say a prayer by way of invitation to the table. I'll invite you. We'll make two lines down these center aisles if you're new with us or visiting, we invite you to the table of our Lord. When you get to the front, somebody will be at here and you'll hear, uh, will be at the table and you'll hear the words spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, you have filled the world with beauty. Open our eyes to behold your gracious hand in all your works, that rejoicing in your whole creation, we may learn to serve you with gladness for the sake of him through whom all things were made, your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Would you join us at the table of our Lord today?